Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week I have something special for you, a sneak preview, an advanced hearing, so to speak, of The Recount podcast known as Battleground, hosted by Amanda Littman and Faz Shakir, one of my favorite podcasts that this company does. In fact, one of my favorite podcasts done by anybody anywhere. Battleground episodes drop on Thursdays normally, but you all are about to have a chance to hear this one two days early. And it is a good episode. This is a seriously good episode. This podcast is great, but this episode kicks ass. The guest is Ellie Mistel, the justice correspondent for The Nation, someone you might recognize from his frequent guest appearances on MSNBC or his Twitter feed, which is incisive and caustic and sometimes kind of funny. <laughs> As for Battleground itself, if you are interested in the inner workings of the Democratic Party or the progressive movement or about small d democracy in general, you will love this podcast. You will love Battleground. The host's incredibly knowledgeable about progressive politics and totally unafraid to say exactly what is on their mind. Amanda Lippman is a co-founder and executive director of Run for Something, a super important, groundbreaking, relatively young organization that recruits young progressives and helps them run for down-ballot races across the country. And Faz, of course, has been a leading progressive voice for over a decade, most recently as Bernie Sanders' campaign manager on the 2020 campaign. Every week, the two of them bring on reporters and activists and operatives to investigate the inner workings of the Democratic Party and the democratic process in order to figure out how progressives can win lasting political power. If you lean to the left or you just want to peek inside the inner workings of the progressive movement, then you need to listen to this podcast. So do it. Do it now. Without further ado, here it is, a sneak preview, an advanced hearing of the forthcoming episode with Ellie Mistal, a battleground with Amanda Lippman and Faz Shakir. I'm Fash Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we talked to Ellie Mistal, the justice correspondent for The Nation magazine and a very frequent contributor to MSNBC. And we're going to talk a lot about what it looks like if you really try to get justice and accountability over Trump and the crimes that were committed by him and his administration. We want to remind you that you can always call us and leave us a voicemail with guest ideas or comments or complaints at 929-399-6748, or you can send us an email at battleground at com. So before we get into it with Ellie, let's set up the conversation a little bit. Attorney General Garland has been in the news recently after the Justice Department decided that they'll defend Donald Trump in a defamation suit against him by writer E. Jean Carroll. That is just one of many decisions that Attorney General Garland has made lately that has seemed to put the Justice Department in a position of protecting the institution over actually fighting for justice, especially when it comes to Trump and his administration. And as someone who went to law school, I enjoy getting into the legal arguments against Donald Trump. And there's a little bit of that in this episode. However, most of it is really about the larger questions of justice, how we administer justice, what principles we should be adhering to, and really kind of the framework of a society and a broken justice system that doesn't go after powerful people. That's kind of the conversation we have here with Ellie. The extent of my legal education and understanding of the Justice Department is the seven seasons of The Good Wife I watched during the pandemic. (laughs) So like... That was illuminating. I learned a lot. (laughs) You know, I think one of the wonderful things that comes out of this conversation with Ellie is that he's challenging us to think very, very differently and boldly about justice in ways that I think fundamentally just come down to motivation and passion for pursuing a very different lens 
around justice. And it's great. I'm a little bitter these days, but I do think counting on Democrats to like do the right and courageous thing feels a little foolhardy at the moment. We should probably just set it up for some folks here. What is it the topic that we're after? And Ellie feels very strongly about this, which is Donald Trump, one of the greatest criminals to hold the presidency uh, in our lifetimes and probably beyond our lifetimes, has gotten away with it. Mm. And for the most part is not being pursued by the Department of Justice and nor does he sit in grave fear of being put in jail. But he could be and should be. So Amanda, are there political concerns that you think that we should all be mindful of as we go about trying to hold Donald Trump accountable? Well, we know that one of the things that makes the Republican Party stronger and especially Republican politicians stronger is being able to claim they are being attacked, that they are victims. They get to leverage that nature of grievance and raise more money it helps build team solidarity amongst the Republican tribe. And I think that if there's real prosecution against Trump or against Cruz or against Holly or any or Mo Brooks or any of the other number Republican elected officials who absolutely committed some crimes, they will take advantage of it. It's a real danger that we have. And there's almost no way that we can avoid it. So I think it's worth ignoring, but it is something to keep in mind as we think about how to talk about this kind of investigation and justice approach, because they will absolutely use it to make themselves stronger. Yeah. And the hard part, too, is there's an argument that the ship has already sailed on him a little mm -hmm. bit, because if, if you're taking on Donald Trump, who you would suspect is going to be your next opponent totally. uh, in 2024, that the first lens that a lot of people would have is that you're simply trying to jail an opponent like a banana republic, right? For people who have not followed or are feeling the justice in their bones around the criminality of Donald Trump and why he was so terrible, you can imagine that the easy fallback was, well, yeah, you know, there's just an effort here, political effort to tear down an opponent, which you and I both know not going to be the thing that guides this. It is really about the criminality and trying to restore democracy in our country. And yet that would be, I think, part of the fear of how it gets perceived. And I totally understand the impulse to say move on because it's been nice to not really think about Trump that often. And we have to do it anyway because we have to do what any good therapist would tell you, which is dig into our past, understand the problems, understand the trauma in order to move forward. Um, we got to do therapy for America, which sounds terrible, and will ultimately get us better on the other side of it. All right, Amanda, let's play our conversation with Ellie. Ellie Mistal, welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you here. I will confess, my eyes glaze over anytime the story starts talking about lawsuits and the Justice Department. So can you lay the groundwork here? What is going on with Merrick Garland? What the fuck is he doing? <laughs> Yeah, it's not great, right? Look, <laughs> let's start by giving the man his due. He came into an impossible situation. Under Donald Trump, Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr, the two previous attorney generals, really changed the nature of the Justice Department from being a representative of the American people to a representative of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So Garland has to come in and kind of unpack all of that, has to undo all of that damage while at the same time, remember, the day that he was supposed to be announced as Biden's nominee for attorney general was January 6th. That announcement did not happen that day. 
<laughs> because there was this whole, you know, white domestic insurrection mm-hmm. that happened on January 6th. So Garland comes in after his confirmation and immediately has to get to work. People forget that the FBI works for the Justice Department, right? So he has a lot to do. And I am willing to give him some measure of leeway, some measure of time to do it all. Like, I understand the enormity of the job, and I'm rooting for him. But he's flopping around a bit. And I believe that the key reason why he's not doing as well as he could be is because his view seems to me to be one of an institutionalist. Mm. He believes that the way to move justice forward is by protecting the institution of the Justice Department. And we've seen this quite a bit from lawyers and legal institutions dealing with Donald Trump. I think for most people, the obvious example would be Robert Mueller, who also at the critical moments decided that the institution of his office, you know, his personal reputation was more important than going after getting Donald Trump, who's a criminal. Yeah. Right. Than going after and getting Bill Barr, who's a criminal and getting these actual criminals to face some measure of accountability. That's a choice that they've made, and I believe that that is fundamentally the wrong choice. That is fundamentally not what we need right now. Wait, I have a question here. Isn't the role of these institutions, if you're really like a firm institutionalist, is to go after criminals and people who are breaking the law? I would agree, (laughs) right? What am I missing here? There are people who believe that process matters more than outcomes. Mm. They would rather follow a process book in order to get to justice as opposed to starting with the correct outcome, criminals in jail, and working backwards from that premise. And what's frustrating and what requires some nuance is to understand that that generally is the right way to go about things. And a lot of prosecutors do kind of start at the end that criminal did something bad. We got to get him and work backwards as opposed to working the process and trying to find the truth. So in a normal world, Garland's approach would be appropriate. In a normal world, Mueller's approach would be appropriate. Their mistake is that we ain't in a normal world. Hewing mm-hmm. to a rule book when the other side takes the rule book, lights it on fire and says, what are you going to do about it? Just doesn't get the job done. If you ever seen uh, uh, The Untouchables, oh, God, sorry. Um, <laughs> if you ever seen The Untouchables, right? Like Sean Connery is constantly asking Kevin Costner, now what are you prepared to do? Mm-hmm. You're not going to get Capone by following the law. You're going to get Capone by getting almost as dirty as Capone. That's how you get Capone. And that's what we need from the Justice Department. You want to get these guys, you got to go get them. And we're not seeing any of that will, any of that determination, any of that fire from Merrick Garland and the Justice Department right now. Well, let's get a little methodical about it and talk about what you would like to see Merrick Garland doing that he's not doing. The easiest thing, Robert Mueller in his report laid out 10 instances of obstruction of justice or abuse of power Donald Trump committed during the investigation into his campaign's ties with Russia. Mm -hmm. All 10 of those charges could be brought against Donald Trump today. The only reason why Robert Mueller did not bring those charges is that Robert Mueller was operating under what I believe is a mistaken belief that a sitting president cannot be prosecuted by his own Justice Department. But now 
certainly that Trump is out of office, that Trump is no longer clothed in executive power. The first thing that Merrick Garland can do is go charge Trump with those 10 crimes, which have already been investigated. If you read Alan Weissman, who was Mueller's right-hand man during the investigation, if you read his book on the investigation, he talks about how in their report, they were trying to make sure they laid enough of a groundwork that as soon as Trump was out of office, the next guy could come in and prosecute him like that. Mm -hmm. The easiest thing in the world would be to prosecute him right there for the crimes, not only that we already know that he's committed, but have already literally been investigated by a special prosecutor. That's one right off the top, easy peasy, right? Going beyond that, I mean, this administration was a walking hatch act in violation. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to use the White House to enrich yourself or sell your own products. I've got memes stocking up my Twitter account of Ivanka and some Goya beans. You know, Kellyanne Conway, walking Hatch Act violation. Most of his kids, walking Hatch Act violations. Charge them with all of that. When I worked for President Obama's reelect campaign in 2012, we took this shit so seriously. Like, you didn't even dare talk about or touch particular topics. Be careful what you posted. Be careful what you emailed. Be careful who you talked to because you didn't even want the appearance of possibly um, messing with the Hatch Act, which basically forbids people working in federal government from engaging in campaigning. These are not difficult violations to prove. You could just go mm -hmm. and prosecute his administration for that. Mm -hmm. In terms of Trump, specifically, the way the Hatch Act worked, mm -hmm. maybe or maybe doesn't apply to the president directly. It, like it certainly applies to Kellyanne Conway. It certainly applies to Ivanka. We don't know exactly if it applies to Donald Trump. What we do know applies to Donald Trump is the Emoluments Act, right? Now, the Supreme Court has declined to weigh in on what the Emoluments Act actually means, what it allows, what it prohibits. It's a novel case, as they say in the law. Well, let's take the novelty off that. Let's break the seal on that wrapper <laughs> and see what emoluments get us. We already know the man is corrupt. We already know that he misused government funds, secret service funds. We already know all of these things. Let's go charge him with an emoluments violation under the Constitution and see what happens. I don't know what happens. As far as I know, the Supreme Court doesn't know what happens. Let's go find out, Merrick. Let's go find out today. I would add the fourth, and I'm sure you've thought about it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, which is the insurrection, the one-sixth moment. And the reason that that's a live wire in my mind is you've already got hundreds of people that you have now arrested, charged, presumably investigated and asked them questions about what motivated them, what inspired them, what caused them to want to storm the Capitol. And I suspect that you'd get a lot of indictment of Donald Trump if you wanted to pursue it. You would essentially cross two wires at the same time. You're already doing this some form of an investigation. It feels like an easy one. Why, why aren't they doing that one? I don't mind a little bit of caution. And it's only because of two reasons. One, we have more than enough easier legal cases to charge Trump with if we just want to get him to have some accountability. The second reason I'm willing to slow walk that investigation a little is that as you get into what Trump, Don Trump Jr., Mo Brooks, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz did, what I think they did was incite a riot. Mm -hmm incite an insurrection. Mm -hmm. However, there are legitimate, to my mind, speech concerns and legitimate worries about blurring the line between 
free speech, I'm just making a political rally and inciting people to violence. If I give a speech, we got to go get Trump. We got to do something about this, whatever. And then some freaking idiot hauls off and, you know, breaks into Mar-a-Lago. I don't want to go to jail. Mm -mm. Right. You're talking about the legal case, to be clear. There's obviously a political case, which, to my mind, the 1-6 commission would have been charged with doing it. We would have a public airing about this matter and at least learn about the ideology and what caused these and what inspired them. But by the way, Ellie and Amanda, you'll remember the 9-11 commission. Mm -hmm. In my community, um, a bunch of American Muslims, when that was coming, there were some people in in my community who were concerned about it. Why were they concerned about it? Because they Republicans were so fired up to do that 9-11 commission, they figured... The Republicans were really interested in having an attack on Islam, about the religion itself, about the ideology. They didn't want to just learn about intelligence failures. They wanted to condemn a religion. They wanted to say, hey, the ideology of these terrorists abroad, we got to go to war with these people. Now what happens when the terrorists are within? What happens when the terrorists are of the ideology of the Republican Party? If you were to start to investigate that, that's a condemnation of everybody in the modern Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And that is what I think they were trying to avoid. But to your point, Ellie, let's have a political argument. Let's have an airing of what inspired these terrorist attacks to occur. And we haven't really had that since it occurred. 100% the right political solution to this would be for Donald Trump to have been impeached and convicted Uh for his words leading to an attack on the Capitol. That was actually the right solution that the Republicans prevented us from having. The second most right solution is 100%, a 1-6 commission that's in the public, that is bipartisan. That it, and once again, Republicans prevented us from having those correct political solutions. And so that is the only reason why we are into these slightly more murky legal options to try to get some measure of accountability because the Republicans have denied us that justice through their political apparatus. It's unfortunate. And again, you always want to be careful when you when you even come close to trading on speech rights because you always have to remember that nine times out of 10, any puncture in speech rights is going to hurt black and brown people in this country, mm-hmm. right? Most of the times, white people will be in the position to tell a black or brown person they shouldn't be allowed to talk, say, do. And again, we're kind of seeing that all over the country, right? Yeah. I mean, we got Republicans out here literally trying to police what teachers are allowed to say to students in college. So make no mistake, anytime you start messing with speech rights, that's a game that black and brown people don't win. So I do have some caution there. However, I can distinguish between telling your supporters to march down to the Capitol and do what they have to do to install you as president, which is a coup. Mm-hmm. Versus, hey, you want to hear about the real history of America? Like, that's a clear distinction to me, but I appreciate that it's a bit more murky for white people. Some white people. Battleground will be back with Ellie Mistal after a quick ad break. Welcome back to Battleground. Putting aside for a moment what the right thing is to do, and I think there is like a very clear, they committed a bunch of crimes all in public. They talked about them very loudly. There's lots of video, lots of footage. What is your ideal outcome for Trump as a person and then Trump as a president or as a former president or as at least Trump's administration, rather, if you understand my distinction? I don't, actually. 
So, I mean, like, there's Trump as the person who committed a bunch of crimes as an individual. And then there's how we as a country handle what happened during the Trump administration and the number of crimes they committed and both the norms that they broke, the ways that they changed the role of government. And I think there's sort of two separate pathways there. What's your ideal outcome for each? I'm following that. Okay, so Trump as a person needs to go to jail. Yeah. Anything less than jail. And I look, it's hard to jail a former president. As I read the Constitution, Trump would get Secret Service protection in prison, Mm. which sucks for his detail, but like still needs to go to jail. If not for the obstruction of justice or the abuse of power or the corruption or the incitement to riots, then certainly for the tax fraud and charitable fraud and and all the fraud that he's committed in New York State. Whichever way you want to come at it, Trump needs to spend some period of time in jail period, end of story. As for the rest of his administration, the only way you stop the Trump presidency from happening again is if you punish the enablers who made the Trump presidency possible. Mm -hmm. You can't jail Mark Zuckerberg, you know, all of these kind of social factors that are responsible for enabling Trump. But you absolutely can jail people in his administration because people in his administration committed crimes. And so that's why I think it's important to prosecute Hatch Act violations. That's why I think it's important to charge people like Christian Nielsen and Chad Wolf, former directors of Homeland Security, who at the very least violated direct court orders to stop kidnapping babies. That's why I think it's very important to charge them for their misdeeds, for their illegalities. Mm -hmm. You need to have accountability and punishment for the people in the executive branch that made the worst parts of Trump's administration possible. Because Trump, being an incompetent idiot, could not have done this alone. He needed the help of the Steve Bannons and the Steve Millers and the Jason Millers to get this going. And if you don't bring accountability to them, then Jason Miller will just work for Tom Cotton. Then Kellyanne Conway will just work for Ted Cruz. It will just all happen again. So the counter to you, I suspect, I'd be interested in what you think the counters are from within the Democratic Party and, and people who you we all trust and respect and we like, but we may have differences of opinions with. After President Bush left office, there was some movement and push for going after him in the same way. Obviously, Iraq war crime, there were a whole host of national security related issues, national security agency spying and such. And President Obama at the time made a clear announcement that we were moving on. Things in the past were in the past, and we're going to rectify and change things in the way we do business, institute more moral government and ethical government. And he won re-election four years later. And I think the argument would be that, Ellie, you know, some of the things you're suggesting might be right, but they might imperil us politically. They might cost Joe Biden the chance to win a re-election or another Democratic president. What's your thought? on that or any other arguments you've heard to counter your position? Yeah. So first of all, I'm going to go back to where you started. You said the people that we trust, respect, and like. I respect and like most of these people, but trust them not a damn <laughs> bit. Good qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't trust politicians worth a damn <laughs> bit, right? It's a smart position to take. <laughs> I think, and I thought pretty much in real time, that Obama's decision not to go after Cheney at the very least, by his enablers, was the biggest mistake of his presidency. Hmm. If Dick Cheney had spent two or three years in a jail cell, I don't think Mike Pence would have been so eager to go get himself hanged 
if he saw accountability happening to Dick Cheney. When you do not prosecute people who commit crimes, it gives license to future people to commit additional crimes. And just to clarify, what would you have charged Cheney with? War crimes. (laughs) (laughs) He lied. Hmm. He lied about why we had to go to war with people who didn't even attack. And he made it up full cloth. There was never any good evidence to suggest that we needed to attack Iraq Mm -hmm. for what some terrorists, mainly from Saudi Arabia, did on 9-11 that never made any sense. Never. So, yeah, I would have prosecuted him for war crimes. And again, it's not just that you didn't convict. The fact that you didn't try. Went back and looked this up during the transition. The interview where Obama says, we're going to move forward, not backwards. We're going to look to the future, not the past. That interview he gave to George Stephanopoulos a week before his inauguration. So Obama comes out the gate telling these people that they're going to get off scot-free. That was the wrong approach. He should have at least tried to bring accountability to them and set the precedent that if you commit illegalities while in office, when the wheel comes round, the first thing that's going to happen is that those illegalities will be investigated and potentially punished. That, I think, would have chilled not all of Trump's excesses, but would have chilled, I think, some of the people, especially early on, the kind of Jeff Sessions type people who were all too willing to do Trump's bidding from the very jump. In terms of the current version of that mistake, right, I find it, frankly, ridiculous because Democrats spent most of the last four years, including 24-7 during the election, telling us, the American people, that Trump was a dangerous, abnormal threat to the very structure of democracy. Those statements were then backed up on January 6th when those exact forces tried to have a coup of our government. You cannot tell your people that these guys are dangerous and that you should vote even for a candidate that you might not like so much because these guys are such dangerous, abnormal threats to our democracy, then get in power and then be like, whatever, whatever, we're just, we're moving on. We got infrastructure to do. We got to fix some bridges. And that's really what people care. No, 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 no. You told me the thing that I needed to care about was our democracy. And if you're going to tell me that the thing that I need to care about is democracy, and I'm going to walk my ass out in the middle of COVID to vote for you in person to make sure that the anti-democratic forces don't steal my vote, to make sure that you get in power to protect democracy, well, then the very least you have to do is show me how you're protecting democracy. Democrats are not protecting democracy in terms of their prosecutions. They're not protecting democracy in terms of their legislation. They're not protecting democracy in terms of literally protecting the right to vote in a democracy. So if the Democrats aren't going to do those three things, then it is a ridiculous notion that the Democrats cannot do those three things for fear of losing the next election. No, 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 no. They promised something. Now they got to go do it. I agree with all of this. And I am curious, one of the things that I think that these, especially Trump and the Republican Party, but writ large, these powerful, usually white men um, can weaponize is becoming the victim. They are able to weaponize that grievance in the court of sort of public opinion, and especially amongst their supporters, it empowers them to do more. Is there a danger in this kind of 
prosecutorial endeavors, commissions, investigations, and that backfiring and ultimately making them even more powerful? I have two answers to that. One, I don't give a crap. I don't mean to be flippant with your question. I honestly do not care what these people tell their, I'll use the word, deplorable supporters, right? Mm -hmm. And that's partially from being black. If I cared what Republicans thought of me, (laughs) I wouldn't have a law degree. I'd be like the most charismatic shoeshiner at Grand Central (laughs) if I really cared what Republicans thought I should be doing with myself. I just constitutionally don't care what they think or how they play it, right? So that's one part. Mm -hmm. The second part of the answer is that the real backlash here kind of then inspires why I went into the profession I did after I was a bad lawyer. The media has such a role to play. Yeah. And if the media does not promote and amplify these bad narratives, these false equivalencies, this really bad both side press release reporting, if it doesn't popularize access journalism, then you wouldn't have those worries. The reason why these rich and powerful people are able to paint themselves as victims is because media organizations will write puff pieces about them. Mm-hmm. They'll go to their homes and be like, I was sitting here with Harvey Weinstein. We had a great Merlot from 93 and blah, blah, blah. Also, he raped people. But you know, it's important to understand that as we were sitting and talking over, you know, crude d'etat, that's the story. Until Ronan Farrow or Jane Mayer shows up. Mm-hmm. And so there is a real role that the media has in shaping these narratives. And so often they shape them poorly. But I view your question, Amanda, fundamentally as a fourth estate problem, not a Article Three judicial problem. It's not a problem with the law being too mean yeah. and thus creating a backlash. I think what Amanda was driving at, too, though, a little bit, I think the famous line from Omar Little in The Wire, if you come at the king, you best not miss. That's right. What do you think about that argument that if you're going to take on the super powerful here and you try to drive this case and you don't get it because ultimately you've got judges and juries, you need them to have some courage too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you end up asking a lot from a lot of people of a level of courage we haven't witnessed in modern history here. And so if you miss, there's an argument that as Amanda's pointing out that basically he takes the wrong lesson, he only grows stronger and obviously his movement gets even... I think we should do it anyway. I just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I, just, I, I agree. But I'm just playing it out, right? Just so we think about it. Yeah. I think even in the situation where you miss, and you're absolutely right, you could miss. You, you could not get him. He's stacked the courts. I have a solution for that too, but that also requires courage from Democrats to expand the courts and whatever. Psych. <laughs> but I, I do think that there's value even in trying and failing for the next guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trump is abnormal, but he's not unique. And that's a really thin, you talk about lawyerly distinctions, as a thin line I'm trying to draw right there. But he's not going to be the only one. There will be others in his footsteps. And anything you can do to tell the next Trump, this is not the way. If you do this, you might get caught. You might get punished. Anything you can do to disincentivize criminal activity from the next criminal is actually worth it. Democracy is a contact sport. This is not an easy system to maintain, especially when you have one party committed to acting in bad faith. Once one party has just gone off the deep end and won't meet you halfway and won't agree on the rules of the road and won't agree on the 
facts of physics. It's hard to maintain a pluralistic, open, democratic society. But it's impossible to maintain that society if all the other party does is placate. And if you Neville Chamberlain the other party, the whole thing is doomed to failure. The only way you can save it is if the party that's still kind of for democracy is willing to defend that in the most aggressive way possible. And at some point, the defenders of American freedom actually have to take a stand and stand up. We are going to take a short break. More with Ellie Mistal from The Nation when we return. Battleground is back with Ellie Mistal. Up to this point, Ellie, we've talked about it from a political perspective and Democrats in the need to hold Trump accountable. And it occurs to me, though, that there's a larger problem with justice in our society, that when we zoom out for a moment, Ellie, I know you know this well, that you take any corporate CEO who might conduct white-collar crime, embezzlement, fraud, don't pay their taxes, are any of them ever landing in jail? In my mind, the reflection of why we don't go after Trump has something to do with it. He was a former president and the concerns of politics, but has a deeper problem with we don't go after powerful people. We don't hold them to the same rules that we would hold a lower income working class person to. I wonder if you say a word about that, what the deeper systemic nature of this problem that actually not going after Trump represents. Republicans go after powerful people. <laughs> Hillary Clinton would still be in a Benghazi goddamn hearing. Yeah, they put her on a political trial. That's right. <laughs> but when you talk about using the justice system to like charge crimes, you know. Right. Nobody went to jail behind the financial crisis, right? Mm -hmm. A bunch bunch of bankers basically played a slot machine with our economy. Nobody went to jail behind that. We don't prosecute financial criminals. Now, I was a defense attorney for powerful corporate interests, and I know something about how those defenses work and why those defenses work. And at the basic level, the government doesn't have the will to chase down corporate interests who can lawyer up like you wouldn't believe. You know, when I was an associate, we used to send emails at very late hours just to prove to the SEC that, hey, we're still working. What you got? And that's my point, right? Is that if you were the IRS, if you were the DOJ, if you were the SEC, if you were the FTC, whoever, you want to go after powerful people, you know you're getting in for a fight. If you talk to Merrick Garland right now, he's no dummy. He's like, hey, Attorney General Garland, we're suggesting that you file a case against Donald Trump. His head's going to twist and turn from all of the complexities and challenges he's now sucked his entire Department of Justice into because he knows it will require every manpower plus to do this because of what he's up against. And if you go after one of them, you can't go after the other ones, right? Because you're going to blow all his manpower on Donald Trump. And then who's left to prosecute the insurrectionists? He's going to blow all his manpower on the insurrectionists. Who's left to prosecute the next Enron or the next, you know? But but by letting the most powerful get away, you are failing to send the, the powerful message that nobody is above the law. What I have said consistently, especially in regards to the New York cases, the Tish James cases that are coming down the pipe against Trump and Trump organization, if New York prosecutors had done their job in the early teens or in the late 90s, we never would have had Trump being president. That's right. Because he would spin a criminal like his business is crime. Mm -hmm. This is a corrupt man who's run a corrupt organization for his entire life as clear as we can see. If Cy Vance had been on the ball in 2012, then Trump never gets to the point where he can be president because he's already in jail for tax fraud. And Trump has learned the lesson that I can get away with. That's what he has taken to the presidency. It's like, hey, no one stops me. So our inability and unwillingness 
And this doesn't just go politically, right? I mean, how many people did Jeffrey Epstein rape because various people didn't want to take on a powerful rich man? How many people did Bill Cosby rape because Pennsylvania prosecutors didn't want to take on America's debt? We see it time and time again, the unwillingness to go after powerful people allows those powerful people to continue committing crime. So we have a real imbalance, not just in how justice works, but who it works for and who it works against. I just would emphasize, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. It is that way because of who we pick to run these departments. That's right. That was the point of Garland, right? It symbolically sends the message that you could have chosen someone who felt a urgency and a willpower and a desire and a passion for justice that was going to rock the establishment, quite frankly. Let's go after it. And instead, they pick someone who's going to play it safe. And we all know that that's the approach. Yep. One of the most important job qualifications, I think, in trying to sift through now is just who feels it in their bones? Who's got a desire to go up against power, take on power? Because it is hard. But if you've got it, we need some of it right now. Yep. So Democrats have control of the House, let's say, optimistically until 2022. But realistically, like they have maybe another six months to meaningfully act before the election season comes up and they get real chicken shit. What should they be doing over the next six to eight months to at least try to hold Trump accountable in some way? Packing the court. The legislation is useless at this point because Trump got three judges. Yeah. The Supreme Court is six to three stacked with conservative judges. Let's take something like the Voting Rights Act, right? The For the People Act, the John Lewis Act, whichever one you like. I like them both. <laughs> They'll both be overturned by the Supreme Court 5-4 before breakfast. Yeah. The Supreme Court doesn't care. The reason why we need a new Voting Rights Act is because the Supreme Court already gutted the first one. Yeah. What about restoring the first one makes Democrats think the Supreme Court is going to defend that? We already have a voting rights legislation. It's called the 15th Amendment. It's called the 19th Amendment. It says you can't abridge the vote on account of race or gender. Boom, we're done. We don't need legislation. We need judges willing to uphold the laws and legislations that we already have, and we don't have that. So the only way you make any real long-term impact on securing our democratic structures is to increase the number of judges on the Supreme Court until you get to a number that is willing to uphold the laws that we already have on their books. I don't support tit for tat. They got three, so we should get four. No, I'm 10, 20 more judges. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Just take the top off this thing. Yeah. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has 29 judges. Right. It works just fine. Yeah. So why can't the Supreme Court have 29 judges? So I would put 20 on the court today. I would even be willing to trade and be like, hey, if you want to play ball, Republicans, we can split them like 12-8 because we are getting our three back. We can split them and be nice about it. Or we can just get 20 of our own and you can just be angry about it, right? And I would roll that way. That would secure rights going forward. People always say, well, like, if you pack the court, Republicans just will when they have a chance. Well, hold on for a second with that. Because one of my arguments is that if you pack the court, you can secure voting rights. And if you secure voting rights, it becomes very hard for Republicans to win the House and the Senate and the White House all in the same cycle. That's difficult because what we've seen is that when everybody votes, Republicans can't win. Mm -hmm. So if you add 20 justices and they are bulls in the China shop protecting voting rights, it's going to be very hard for Republicans to ever retake all of government again. But let's say they do. In the worst case scenario, you've added 20, now Republicans are back in control, so they add 20. So what? How is that worse than what we have now? <laughs> How is Republicans repacking the court after you pack the court worse 
than where we are right now today, where Republicans have a six-year advantage on the court for a lifetime. Yeah. I would like to see them try to repack the court after you pack the court and you do all the things to protect democracy that you're trying to do. I love it. You know, people are like, oh, well, isn't that that sounds so radical? It's actually constitutional. The structure of the Supreme Court, it says that you have to leave the justices on for life. That's actually in the Constitution. But the number, that's just up for grabs. It's constitutional. It's easy. It's a simple piece of legislation. Like, it just, that's what we should do. <laughs> Ellie, this has been a very thought provoking and wonderful conversation around justice. It's really what it was. So, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Ellie Mistal for joining us on this episode of Battleground. A reminder that if you want to call or leave us a voicemail, you can reach us at 929-399-6748 or send us an email at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer, and Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 